Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Chris Beistroff. Chris, how are you doing? Doing great. Glad to be here, and thanks for inviting me. Glad to have you here. Uh, let's see, you're a professor at Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute. And That's correct. You, I'm just going to read the first paragraph of your bio. Uh, my lab studies the folding and design of proteins, enzymes, vaccine, antigens, and biosensors. When I came here in 99, I was a bioinformaticist. Informatician. <laughs> and my lab worked exclusively in computational biology. Since then, we've evolved into a mostly experimental lab with little computation mixed in. But I'm going to tell everyone how I... Oh, wait, I got to begin the first sentence. We're also engaged in a collaborative effort to develop a contraceptive vaccine. And I hope we get to that in this episode. I'm going to share how I came to you. Okay. So... Long-time listeners have heard uh, Dave Gardner has been on this podcast a few times. Uh, I've been on his podcast as well. And I often appear a lot because I, I respond to his when they talk and I comment in and he reads uh, messages for me on his podcast a fair amount. And he works on growth and our addiction to growth and reducing that addiction to growth. What led me to you was that you wrote a paper on population growth uh, let me see. I, I got the name of here. Uh, Footsteps to Singularity. And you talked a lot about, I mean, you come from a limits to growth back uh, perspective. Regular listeners know I talk about limits to growth a lot. You, you did a simplified version of their model. Like their world three model is, uh, it's, it's self-simplified compared to the world, but um, still somewhat complicated. So you simplified the model and you, you, we'll talk about your results in a second. But you also talked about how the models of the UN and and various peer groups don't have feedback from the environment. They just take data from demographics and they put in, they increase the error bars by asking people what they think about possible things like wars or ecological environmental degradation. But that's like driving with a rear view, only looking in the rearview mirror. It can't possibly show uh, a collapse. There's no way that that could their model could possibly show that. And so, reading your paper got me to read all these assumptions in there, which I never looked at before. And I had this view of like, well, maybe the the UN is a pretty reputable organization, and they show that leveling off and you know hitting like maybe 10 billion roughly before 2100, and then leveling off something below that, and then maybe slowly declining. And I was like, well, they probably know what they're talking about. I can, you know, the limits to growth stuff says that there's a pretty, a lot of the models show a collapse. Maybe I should trust the UN. They're pretty trustworthy. Yeah, I don't know. I, I do think that they should have been able to predict a collapse because I do think looking at the rearview mirror, even looking at the rearview mirror, if you see the road is turning, you can predict it's going to turn ahead. And uh, in fact, the, the reason I got into population modeling is I felt that they were, um, putting a more a, a, a too optimistic a, a view of the future population, even looking at current and past data. And I'm talking about data since about 1970. And so they've had to curve their predictions down since then. And, and as, a, as a bioinformatician, the, what that does to me is it says there's a missing op, there's something in their model that's absolutely missing. And that is the thing that drives me is that when there's something missing and, and everybody, I mean, everybody swallows that model whole without chewing and without questions. And so I, to me, it was an un, I could not resist weighing in on this. And it was just math, really. It was just going in 
And, and the, the um, as you correctly mentioned, my world four model is based on a simplification of world three. But the reason for that was because simple is better. And because I think it's, it's easier to uh, convince others of the correctness of the model if there are fewer moving parts. So, um, which is, by the way, the philosophy of uh, one of the greatest uh, population modelers on the planet, which is Ugo Bardi of, uh, of Italy, and you should interview him. So I did it. So I got into that and uh, looked at it and said, what could cause a downturn versus the, the prediction? Because the, the prediction says growth is not exponential, but hyper exponential. Oh, wait, uh, sorry. Uh, sorry to interrupt. But before we get into the details, can we go back? Yeah. You did talk about how you got into population. But do you mind also sharing how you went into environment? Because that first paragraph would not indicate that this was an interest of yours at all. Do you mind going back a step and, and saying what brought you to this area? Well, it wasn't environment so much as... How'd you meet Dave also? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> How did I meet Dave? Well, okay. So this actually goes quite a bit back. I mean, this is stuff I've been thinking about since the 70s. It's not... I just didn't... I didn't get into this recently. And I just haven't been putting my all into it until the last uh, 10 years or so. And that's where I've developed a course and uh, wrote my first publication on this. But I've been thinking about it for a very long time. So uh, it, was, it was natural for me to start getting involved in groups like Dave's, uh, Population Balance and uh, Growth Busters, and just started speaking up on these. And you know, it, was, it was cathartic to talk to people that also thought we were really not getting the whole truth on population. And it was cathartic to be able to talk about something which to uh, which is an elephant in the room and has the uh, the turd in the punch bowl effect in any <laughs> conversation and uh, any party. So um, and I, I was getting used to being the turd in the punch bowl a lot. So uh, it was nicer to be in a surrounded by like minded people. Did one of the groups involve Tom Murphy and do the math blog? His do the math blog? No, unfortunately. <laughs> Did I tell you about it before? I forget. I think I have that. That was on my list. Okay. To, to take a, you gave me a link for that. Yeah. And I will. So he's a prior guest too. And oh, there's something I forgot to add. Oh, yeah. I should, the listener should know that you've listened to my episode with Wolfgang Lutz before now. So you can comment yes. on that. So we'll come up to that. Yeah. I just, I listened to it last week right after we talked. And uh, then I just got back to it this uh, just as before we came in, and I, I listened a little bit of it again, so I could uh, be a little bit more coherent. And uh, I can tell you kind of the executive summary, and then we could talk about other issues. And the and it's also I think it is what people could get from your interview of Wolfgang Lutz, what was missing in his model, and that was that uh, there's no limits. Uh, the the Earth has limits. It's a finite planet. And the model uh, that Lutz produced for the UN doesn't model them. It, it looks at trends in birth rate, trends in death rate, and has this stochastic model for immigration, which is not good, by the way. So, And then birth rate, to their credit, they model birth rate and death rate more sophisticatedly. They, they don't use just a simple exponential, but they have a second derivative in there. So they look at changes in the trends, trends of the trend, in other words, that's called the second derivative. So um, that's all fine and good. But then there's the, the, the downside of this is A, they're ignoring data because we have 
a downward trend in that second derivative. And it's beyond, it, it doesn't fit the idea of it plateauing off, um, which is the way they modeled it. And um, so do you mean that the population is, it's, they predicting it leveling off, but, but the actual data showing it more than leveling off? The actual data in the rearview mirror suggests that it's going to curve downward, not level off. It's not getting less steep. It's the, that, that is the change in the trend is getting greater, not lesser. And that means that that is the force that's kind of pushing it downward is pushing harder and harder as we approach those limits. Even though we're still going up, if we didn't have that force, population today would be something like 20 billion. It would be very high. Um, a model that had no such downward force on it was developed in 1960 by a guy named uh, Von Forster. And it was, it was published in Science Magazine, and he called it the Doomsday Model. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek. And I always thought the paper was a joke, but it was quite um, good at predicting population up to about 1990 or so. And what he did was model the curve as a, uh, as a hyperbola. Uh, similar to what I did, which was I used a hyper-exponential, but a hyperbola and a hyper-exponential are very similar. And uh, and he predicted that, and this is the tongue-in-cheek part, Von Forster predicted that population would go to infinity in 2026, November 13th, which was a Friday. <laughs> and um, so, uh, but nonetheless, that was based on data in 1960. He says the curvature looking in the rearview mirror is much more than what we're seeing now. The curvature in the past is, was greater. It was hyper-exponential. Now what we're seeing is not only sub-exponential, it's actually sub-linear. So uh, what's doing that? What's causing the, this push downward? Well, if you talk to the ecological footprint people, it's that we're running out of earth. We're running out of water. We're running out of uh, fertile land. Uh, we're even running out of climate. Climate is a commodity. Climate is uh, not something you buy and sell, but uh, the earth provides services to the planet. The earth provides stabilization services, you know, the regularity of rain and such. And now that's all being disrupted. And so we have, we're getting poorer and poorer services. We're using up that commodity. So um, these things are not, not so easy to quantify uh, one at a time, but if you just quantify them as an aggregate, which is what I did in my model, and you allow that aggregate number to float, you can fit the data and you can very accurately model the downturn. And then I, you get a very different prediction going forward. It doesn't look at all like the UN model. It doesn't level off. It doesn't have a nice gradual downturn around 2080 or 2100. 20, uh, instead, it has a, a quick peak in this decade and starts going down. And we get down to maybe two to four billion within this century, probably within about 40 years in this model. Still rearview mirror model, only with the additional factor of having a limit on growth and then and recognizing how you model limits on growth the economists know how to model limits i just i don't know it baffles me why they haven't 
put that into the UN model because economists know what you do about limited resources. You model it. You have this something called the extraction model, also called the, um, what is it called? Diminishing returns model. Mm -hmm. So diminishing returns model says as something is uh, being used up, at some point it's not worth it to uh, extract more. That model applies to uh, fossil fuels. It apply, and we're, we're reaching diminishing returns for oil. It applies to, um, I think it, it should apply to water too, but uh, they don't model it. So it, it kind of, you know, listening to Lutz talking, it made me think more about the nature of demographers and the why is that they choose not to use the knowledge that they should have to improve their model. Well, he was saying that they had uh, – he said they, they struggled with, I think, what he called low-probability, high-impact events. So a volcano going off like Krakatoa would be a low-probability, high-impact event because that led to like the year without summer and things like that. And what I didn't challenge him on because I didn't really get to it, I didn't think of it in, until afterward, was – Something like plastic in the ocean is not a low probability, high impact event. It's a gradually increasing or aquifers depleting. That's not a low, like we're causing it. We're deliberately drawing down on them and we're not doing it deliberately faster than they're refilling, but that's what's happening. Like we're not saying like, let's, let's draw down faster than they're refilling. We're just saying, let's use, well, I guess we're saying let's use as much as we can uh, so we can get to, or I guess as much as we want to. But the net result is that we're having a, what seems to me, a high probability, high impact event. Coming up, we do have one of those. Many of those, yeah. My thoughts on that are these events aren't big enough that they're talking about in the past to have an effect on the overall population. And, and they don't model, I don't know, did he say they don't model it because they can't? Because that was a recurring theme in his uh yeah, they can't really figure out how to do it. How do you model an asteroid hitting the Earth? You can't model it. You can't, and you don't. But I think he, I think there's a lot of that um, kind of hiding behind the unknowable and not modeling things that really are knowable. Yeah, to me, there's a category error. There's two separate types of events. And not including one, volcanoes, is like that makes a lot of sense. I, I, they just yeah. increase the error bars. Although the error bars should then be one more low than high, not symmetric. But in any case, maybe there could be some events that like we discover something that, I don't know, some something that uh, maybe we discover some really effective um, carbon capture sequestration yeah. device. Yeah. But he's right. They're very, they're very rare. I think the only, uh, there were like two major eruptions in the last, in the human existence on this planet that were so big that they affected population. One was 70,000 BC, and it was the island, uh, it's called Toga or something like mm -hmm. that. Another one was an eruption in Central America that caused a huge famine in the uh, 500, 600 years, the, the, the beginning of the Dark Ages. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, but those are kind of, kind of rare, and those are unknowable. That's not a problem. Yeah, but I don't plastic in the ocean is just... is very predictable right that's predictable and why not model it yeah <laughs> so that's that's my complaint is that I, I do think there's a lot of hiding behind things that can't be known 
And uh, when they really, there are things that you can know that can be added uh, to this model. I don't, I'm not talking about overfitting the data. Uh, I'm talking about adding modeling principles to the model that should be there and are not there. And that's the, the idea that there's a limit. The other modeling principle and the one that kind of smooths over um, large uh, disasters is the biological principle that humans are a case-selected species. And uh, what that means is that our reproduction rate is not defined by our ability to, to make offspring, but it's defined by the food supply. So uh, that's, that's something that I put into my model, and it, it totally changes uh, the way you interpret it. It's a, it. It means that what we're modeling when we're modeling population is not so much birth and death rate, but the food supply. It's modeling the ability of the planet to sustain us, the so-called carrying capacity. And that's a term I didn't hear in uh, uh, Wolfgang Lutz's um, podcast with you is, uh, is that term, carrying, carrying capacity. Once you recognize that there is a carrying capacity, there is something of a, a modeler's obligation to put it in. But how do you do it? Well, so looking back from his perspective, he's a demographer. And from his perspective, I mean, he talked about how limits to growth, they, don't, they, they just have population. They don't have education levels. They don't have gender. They don't have sex. They don't have lots of different things. So from their perspective, it's, uh, it's hopelessly naive, uh, simple, oversimplified. If your goal is to be a demographer and say, we just make, want to make demographic predictions, then we could say maybe there, it really should come with a warning, not a warning, but like a label saying, you know, this is just assuming an earth without limits. And maybe it's the error on the part, maybe the mistake is on the part of everybody else saying, applying it beyond what it was intended to be used for. Like, is he and and the and, and his peers, are they trying to predict the future? Or are they just trying to predict demography? In which case, maybe we should just discount these things. I don't I don't think you can uh, put the responsibility on the, the consumer of this data, that's not fair. Uh, they are taking the position of the, um, the expert, you know, they've got the public attention. And so they're responsible for the quality of that data and those predict those predictions. So I don't buy the, the idea that, uh, you know, this is uh, that they have some kind of warning that this is only good if you ignore pop, if you ignore the earth's limits. And just uh, you know, take it for what it's worth. Uh, no, um, that doesn't work for me. So you have okay. to take, you have to be responsible. What about uh, what about taking World Three and putting a lot more demographics in there? Actually, it comes under criticism from a lot of places. Like demographers say it doesn't have the stratification and the, and the curves, and it, and then um, people who look who work on um, engineers will say, oh, they just lump in all. The copper and fossil fuels are the same. They're, that's non-renewable yeah. resources. And renewable resources, they're all the same. And yeah. what it, does it make sense? To me, as a physicist, physics is replete, is full of examples of models that are very – like the Bohr model of the atom is like very simple, but it's enough to get you a laser, amazingly. And mm -hmm. the, a model being simple doesn't mean that it's naive. It can be simple and still effective. 
I mean, the real test is checking it against data and limits to yeah. growth seems to do pretty well against the data. But what if we did put in, if we broke out non-renewable resources, I mean, it feels like it would be like hopelessly complex. It would be, it would tend toward hopelessly complex. And so what you're talking about agrees with the Einstein principle of make everything as simple as possible, but no simpler. Mm -hmm. And it agrees with, I've mentioned Ugo Bardi, who says simple models more, he calls them mind-sized models, mm -hmm. uh, just carry the power of uh, the, the teaching power, the understandability power that you don't get from the complex models. Complex models, all they offer you is shock and awe. They, you know, oh, you, you, you can't really get your head around these models. Even Donella Meadows, who developed World 3, admitted that it was a lot of the models, her own model was a mystery. They didn't understand how it was working. So um, I took that as license to simplify. <laughs> yeah. So aggregation is the key to simplifying. And aggregation should be done smartly because you shouldn't throw things together if they don't belong together. But um, in World 3, I, I lumped a lot of things together by aggregating them. In World 4? Yeah. There's only four uh, stocks in, in, in World 4, yes. Um, there's uh, uh, domesticated land, wild land, technology, and the lack of technology, which I, I call knowledge and ignorance. And I got a lot of flack for calling one of the stocks ignorance. But it, what's important is it had a systems dynamics definition. It had a mathematical definition, not that it had some kind of um, something that you could point to, a, a material definition. It didn't have that. But uh, that was very, very simplified. Um, so what was it? When I think of limits to growth, it took me a long time. I mean, I've read it several times. And... At first, I thought it was predicting the future, but then I realized they're not predicting the future. They're trying to understand a model. But even then, as you point out, the models is even as simple as it is, it's still complex. But then I realized it's really about, it's a tool to tell us general patterns of the interaction between humans and our environment. And it's a, I think of it as a leadership tool because the different model, the different, um, scenarios that they project are uh, based on different assumptions. Can we make a situation where we don't collapse? And they, and they found that. And that tells potential leaders or leaders who are potentially interested what they could do to mm -hmm. stave off or, or eliminate the collapse and have a stable population with plenty of resources and high quality of life. In 1972, right. that was possible. Even in the 30-year version that I read, uh, it was still somewhat possible. And uh, so it's a tool to help people figure out what values should we adopt. Should we push for unlimited growth? Should we push in population and market? Should we invest into technology and things like that? That's what that book to me was about. Yeah. Your model was, I th what, was what was the point of your paper? Well, wait a minute. I, I don't think it really, I, I think that's how people will see it. They'll say, oh, there's still hope because in the last and most improbable scenario, the, the scenario 10 or whatever it was, the last one on their mm -hmm. list, they finally had, they pulled out all the stops and they were able to 
create a scenario in which population rises and plateaus. Starting in 1972 or 2000. And that's a 2004 model. Mm-hmm. But in, in all the other ones where they didn't pull out all the stops, you still saw population going up and then coming down. Yeah. They, and they also emphasize that the most likely scenario is the scenario one, the business as usual model. And that's the one which now fits the, the population to date. I think business model two fits it. Do you read Guy Harrington's? I have the book. But anyway, I think it was, yeah, you may be right that two was the business as usual model. No, I mean, there's business as usual one and business as usual two. There's one where they assume double the uh, non-renewable resources. And I think that one fit better. Oh, okay. Okay. But otherwise, everything the same, just just extra oil and gas and non-renewable resources. Like that was the one that showed just having more input doesn't help. It doesn't just help get, you. It, yeah. you get you go a little bit longer and then a steeper collapse. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I did a little bit of scenario building in my model too. Because uh, I thought, well, they did it. So, but I, I, I emphasize in my paper that this is a business as usual model. And please, you know, never mind the scenarios. I put that in because people demanded it. Uh, I, the business as usual model is the one that we should always present as a scientist. Uh, otherwise, we're we're engaging in something called human exceptionalism that we can we can do something week to uh, to change our future, even though in the past we have no basis for believing that from past data we don't there's there's no indication that we ever have done that in the past. So we're saying that we could do something in the future that we've never done before and I don't really buy that but I, I they did people asked me to put this in so I did and I based it on EO Wilson's half Earth uh, book. His his final book was called Half Earth. And it was the idea that if you saved half of all the wild land on Earth, uh, that it would be a good thing and it would save humanity. So I tried that. And yep, he's right. If you save more than half, population still uh, never gets up to the pop. It it doesn't agree with the past, never gets up to the current population. If you save less than than 40 percent, population still goes up and, and goes back down. Uh, but it goes down a little more slowly. But if you save something by 40% or more of the wildland in my model, population does go up and levels off. So can we do it though? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is this is just like an exercise in, in hope. It's not really, it, it might be something that's just not politically possible because that would mean taking a lot of land that's already domesticated and rewilding it. And I, I don't see that happening. So um, we can dream. But it's uh, I think the business as usual model is the one that's going to actually happen. So what was your goal in creating? I mean, it's a lot of work. Was it just to, I mean, was it to show that the UN was missing something absolutely essential? Was it to change how the modeling is done? Yeah, that was that was it. And at that point, I had uh, I had already been giving talks on population since 2005, and I had accumulated so many slides that I had enough to offer a course, and I offered a course, and it became an exercise in the course to simplify World Three. So that's where it came from, really. Uh, but it was it's also it was just an obsession of mine going way back. So um, 
it, it's not that I have it out for the UN. It's that I believe there was some missing element in there. And for some reason, maybe, you know, scientific inertia, they had not updated their model, even given clear cut evidence that there's something missing in it. So, and that's what I wanted to talk about, by the way. <laughs> why did the UN, why is there this inertia? Even now, when there's published models going back decades that suggest population will follow the standard boom and bust, uh, you know, that, that a lot of other species happen, they go up and they go down, the UN still will not change. And Wolfgang Lutz will not enter entertain a change in the model. Why is that? And I can only think that uh, social scientists and psychologists have to get in on this is that their interest uh, is to maintain their their position of power in the public spotlight. Uh, they right now have a lot of power because they are predicting the future of population. Uh, if they change their model, there's going to be this perception that they didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, changing the model in in the public opinion decreases the confidence in the model, which is it's ironic because changing and updating a model is a sign of scientific robustness, but somehow it's a sign of public waffling. So um, I think what that's my opinion, that's my, my theory, is that what's going on is there's this social scientific inertia of, of this model, and they're, they're now unwilling to change until it becomes uh, painfully obvious uh, that they're off. Like in 2030, the decadal census, if we see it's going down from 8 billion instead of up, there's going to be a reckoning. So how many people, you said that there's published models, there's yours. How many people are suggesting that they change their models? Is it a lot? Is it, I mean, are you one of the major voices uh, saying things, let's, let's look at this more? Or are they really? There's not a huge groundswell. <laughs> no. Uh, and nobody, even, even in population communities, there's not a whole lot of people saying population's going to peak and decline. I have to, they're, they're the ones that are easier to convince of that, but they're not, they don't even want to hear that either. People in population communities are still thinking of the UN model and they're assuming it. They're saying, oh, it's going to be 10 billion or it's going to be 9 billion. So, um, no, there's, there's no such groundswell. Oh, there's oh me God, it's... And, and there's uh, world three, really. So there, there's the, the late Donella Meadows, and there's Dennis Meadows in New Hampshire. And, uh, but they're not, you know, they never have been the activist. So uh, they're not out there shouting and wearing the placard, the end of the world is coming. Uh, they're just like me, they're publishing it. It's science now, it's been peer reviewed. Pay attention to it if you want to. And I think it's irresponsible of those doing modeling of population these days to ignore uh, what's been published now. So I, I know that's self-serving to say that, but <laughs> it's still true. They should read my paper. Well, that's why I did. That's why you're here. That's why I invited <laughs> Thank you. you. It, I, I got to go back a couple steps and I want to come back to where you are now because you quoted Einstein. So I'm going to quote Feynman yeah. that uh, he said – well, I'm not going to quote it. I'm going to paraphrase him that the measure of, of a theory is, does it fit the data? 
you make an observation. If it fits the observation, you got some credence for it. If it doesn't, it's wrong. End of story. It's wrong. And in no matter how he's like, it doesn't matter how, how much you like your theory. It doesn't matter how beautiful you think it is. If it doesn't fit the data, it's wrong, which to me is one of the great beauties of science. And one of, one of the jokes I often say is that in economics, if, the, if, if you have a theory and it doesn't fit the data, then the data is wrong and your theory is right. <laughs> so, and I say that half in jest, but it does seem to, I see that a fair amount. I don't think they have the beauty that in physics, we felt like if the reason to become an experimentalist is to prove the theorists wrong. You can't prove them right, but you can prove them wrong. I mean, if you get data, the, the, and we want to send them back to the drawing board. That was what we wanted to do. Yeah. Now, Feynman is wonderfully blunt. I love it. <laughs> I have a teaching philosophy because it kind of goes along those lines. And I, um, I present it in the course I teach on human population. And it starts with data. As Feynman says, data is sacrosanct. And then it goes to the next step. And the next step is interpretation of the data. And the next step is prediction, the third step. And you do not move on to prediction until you've passed through the interpretation phase. And this is where I differ from demographers because they do they have the data and they go straight to prediction. There's no kind of physical model in there. Yes, there are, there are curve calculations, there are equations in there, but there's very little um, earth influence or, or none reflection internal reflection of like what does this mean what are we what are we doing here i mean i mean ex, i mean outside information coming in the the earth's limits the change in non-renewable resources or any of that is not included in the model they're just modeling trends in birth rate death rate and immigration so they're they're taking the data and modeling it with a curve but there's no interpretation there's nothing asking why population is growing why populations why the growth is now slowing it's not in there so don't, don't they talk about a demographic transition as people become more educated their needs decrease or they yeah i mean there's a demographic transition no, that's true that's that's an interpretation but it's also just another phenomenology because it, it's just saying this is what's happened in the past so they do have yeah they, they'll say education leads to decrease in the birth rate and also, it's, it's one model. It's, there are other ways of explaining changes in the birth rate uh, due to environmental influences. So it's, it's not a DTT, demographic transition theory, goes uncontested. But it's something that's a phenomenon of the first world in the last few centuries. And it's, uh, it's descriptive, but it's not clear... That, that the only reason for uh, the changes in the, the, the birth rate, the changes in the death rate is indisputable. And that, yes, technology is improving and uh, death rate's going down. I'm not going to make a case about that. But the changes in the birth rate due to education kind of misses something. The birth rate was high among the educated uh, going way back. The changes in the birth rate according to a biologist, can be resource-related. A lot of animals will have fewer babies if they don't have enough food. Now, sheep will ovulate less if the pastures are degraded, and, and rodents will, will eat their young. Maybe that's not appropriate for a podcast, but uh, a lot of animal, animals will choose their family size based on their perceived resources that are available to them, and humans should not be an exception to that. 
We're just doing it more rationally. Here's a, an example I use in my book a lot is I, I could pick many different situations, but Hawaii is the one that I usually talk about is something like a thousand years ago, the Polynesians found it, which itself is phenomenal that they would find these little islands a thousand miles away in boats. That, anyway, so uh, they settled Hawaii and for some time there was trade with Polynesia and then there wasn't. So for something like 500 years, which is more than enough time for the population to grow beyond uh, to to grow i mean 500 years ago we were less i mean 100 some years ago we were 2 billion at the the 120 years ago we were 2 billion so we we've grown billions in that time uh and so when captain cook arrived when the first europeans uh, stumbled on them they were something like 300,000 people and as far as we can tell they were living sustainably mm. and i don't know exactly how like i, I I don't think, I mean, is it, were, did they have some sort of birth control? Did they, was it infanticide? We don't, I, I don't know. Yeah. But they did it. There's two really good sources for that. Uh, one is Malthus and Malthus. Uh, so a lot was known about how populations stabilized themselves back in the, in 1800 when Thomas Malthus, a, a whole volume of his uh, book on, on population goes through the different countries of the world and how they, decrease uh, how they maintain the population and keep it from uh, overgrowing the, the country. I, I remember Norway, it was by enlisting men during their most reproductive years in the army. And in the Borneo, it's murder. And uh, uh, there's a very high murder rate and that keeps the population down. And so there's, there's not one way, but uh, many ways. The other resource is, is Jared Diamond and his book Collapse. Mm -hmm. And he does talk about island cultures there. Uh, Pitcairn Island and Easter Island, Rapa Nui, yeah, and uh, and they they talk about cultural changes there that over the years have made island culture sustainable, whereas some that were not sustainable simply disappeared, and that was the case of Rapa Nui. There have been lots of collapses. Yeah I, yeah, I did find a paper on how the San Bushmen in the Kalahari maintained it, and it was a mix of. Um, they had some like the average woman would give birth to something like five babies, and but there were things like they're very active, which meant that they ovulated less. They ate their um, it also meant that they started ovulating later in life and stopped ovulating earlier in life. Uh, there was a certain number of there's a certain amount of infant mortality. Oh, and they they breastfed until they were like four or five years old, and that lowered the birth rate too. And it seemed like the natural birth rate of just if they just lived life and had the number of kids that they had, whatever their sex lives were, would come out to about a little over two children per woman. Mm. So it just, it finds a way. Life finds a way to balance itself. If it doesn't, then they they die. Yeah, I did find another, I found another paper that showed that there were a lot of collapses. Yeah. Uh, like it was, if you looked over a certain time scale, it looked level. But if you looked more detail, there was like a sawtooth pattern. But oh yeah, the the if you read um, what's his name is John Reader, uh, biography Africa, biography of a continent. He talks about how collapses. So you have to go to Africa if you want to look at the long term history of mm -hmm. humanity. Uh, and there have been collapses throughout. Archaeologists carbon date the bones, and they find a peak amounts of bones in certain times, and it, so it's punctuated. And they find times in which you just rarely uh, find any record. So it's been happening uh, since humanity existed. This is not the first time we were uh, reaching a peak.
So um, it's just the first time it's a global peak. Well, I guess it was global it is. global human back when we were a few thousand people too. Yeah, no, no, this is the first time that we're really uh, reaching the the Earth's limits. And uh, will we learn from this, or will we go extinct? And maybe I think that the population will go down, but those that survive are never going to forget it. And they're going to adopt a, a global culture that prevents that from happening again. If, well, well, we certainly won't have the fossil fuels to restart a new industrial revolution. And we probably won't have the materials, the, the, the records, the libraries, the book. I mean, everything stored in computers is going to be gone. I mean, I don't know about that. I think it, it's not, impossible that we could maintain technology uh oh i'm thinking of, i'm thinking about a big collapse yeah i i'm going with my model so i'm going to two billion to four billion which is a large number and i think you could, we could because it, the reason i'm not thinking it's going to be a complete collapse is that at some point life becomes easier and easier and easier because there's fewer and fewer people competing for resources and also, as our impact on the wild goes down, wild will grow back. Yeah, it grows back fast. Yeah. yeah. And it grows back fast. And all of a sudden, we've got plenty of meat, you know, and some of it's trying to eat us, but we're trying to eat it. And that, that happens pretty fast. I mean, you look at what happened to the region around Chernobyl in just a few decades. You look at what happened to the, the, the what's it called, the demilitarized zone. In Korea. Between Korea's, yeah. Yeah, in 50 years. And it's completely wild because nobody goes there because they think there's landmines. So, uh, you know, when population goes down, we're going to see a massive rewilding. And then it won't go down all the way because food will be available. Well, now, all right, I want to keep, I want to play with this because I haven't had this conversation with anyone at all yet. And let alone someone who's modeled these things. Because to me, once the population starts dropping really fast, you're going to you're gonna have wars of a resource that can go global very quickly. So your model and, and the the limits of growth they they take pain to or they make sure that they say once it starts going down our model doesn't apply we don't know what will really happen then and because they don't have military in there right but they're they're um, abdicating their responsibility if you do that I mean you you really have to if you want the model to mean anything you have to model all scenarios. And a very simple model says resources will go up per person as population goes down. And never mind the details. The details are, I mean, death is fungible. If it's not war, it's famine. If it's not famine, it's disease. There, there's going to be some way. And we are a case-selected species, and we will just grow up to whatever the carrying capacity is. End of story. And you don't, don't worry about the details. War, I don't think we're going to have a nuclear war. And if we did... It would only concentrate population centers. So, Because um, I'm picturing a world where all the water is, is plastic. There's plastic everywhere. We can't yeah. – th that's going to be there for like a thousand years. And it's going to keep increasing. So I presume that that's going to cause birth defects and uh, lower our fertility. And there are few places where – I mean, we're never going to have the aquifers back again because the – like we deplete them and then the rock falls down and fills up where the water was. So. Well, if that happens, you have a lake. You don't, you don't lose the aquifer. It just becomes closer to the surface. So well, it depends um, on, it depends on how low it is. I, I'm not opposed to doom and gloom. I'm, I'm like a, a promoter of doom and gloom, but some of this is not rational doom and gloom. We're not going to lose the aquifers. 
And we're not going to have so much plastic pollution that we all our fertility uh, goes to zero. That's that's just not plausible. Um, I'm not saying it goes to zero, but I'm saying that it's. Um, I think that I could see things steepening the collapse once it starts really kicking in steeper than the predictions say. So I do, but I do see recovery. I agree that there would be recovery too. And yeah. one of my big hopes is that we don't wipe out the Hadza and, and the, those that know how to live off the land, right. that we don't completely wipe them off, wipe them out so that we don't have to rediscover it all over again. They will repopulate us. You're right. There's a fraction of people that are already living off the land and they're not going to be so affected by this. So I was going to say that the uh, since I modeled the hopeful scenario, I also did go the opposite direction. And I modeled a scenario in which we collapsed. Let's see if I can remember what I said. <laughs> I guess it was um, the the scenario for complete collapse um, has to do with climate change. Um, there are unknowns in climate change, and one of them is the Arctic and methane. And there's a, a dangerous looking uh, positive feedback loop in methane because methane itself is a potent greenhouse gas and more and more of it is being released as temperature goes up. So a positive feedback loop has the potential for a catastrophic climate change. And that would be, it could get up to a point where, let's see, they said if the nighttime temperatures don't go, go below 90 degrees, all rice is dead. So the, you will not be able to, and and similarly for and all corn also, because anything that's pollinated by the wind needs a, a low enough temperature at night that the the silks, you know, still have a little moisture on them. So then you say, OK, that's not totally implausible. We could end up having uh, the breadbaskets of the world having very hot nights during the growing season. And that would be a catastrophe and that we'd lose all our food. And there you'd see, yes, maybe human. And then you could say, let's suppose humans, like other animals, have a minimum viable population. There, what happens in any other species is they, if they don't have a minimum viable population, they, they collapse to zero. You need a certain number. I don't know what that might be in humans, but let's say it's a, a hundred million or so. And without that, uh, I don't know. Wait, we, I mean, we had a population of like a thousand far enough back yeah so it could be even less than that but we lost a lot of the knowledge that we had when we survived uh that near extinction we don't live off the land anymore can we relearn it i don't know in a, in a pessimistic scenario we can't relearn it and then we collapse but then again that's just as improbable in my mind as leveling off i do think it's going to be something in between and also if we do drop down to something like 2 billion people within a couple decades, doesn't that mean a lot of people are dying? I mean, that sounds like a collapse. Uh, it does, but it also... Um, I mean, okay, we, we might maintain civilization, but a lot of people are going to die young. Yeah, I should have been more prepared for that because what I want to do is is figure out how much of that is decreased birth rate and how much of that is increased death rate. Um and that's where that has that's not in my model. And that's a place where there should be there's justification for doing age demographics. And so it's, that's a that can be solved and you can put brackets around 
death rate and birth rate by by looking at that because of course if you go to zero birth rate uh then you could collapse to zero because then you, if you get through a whole uh reproductive cycle with nobody going into their fertile years you go to zero so it can't be that it can't be entirely on the birth rate that population collapses it has to be partly increased death rate yeah but then we don't know the specifics <laughs> there there it's justified to kind of break it down into regions and the which parts are going to survive and i think the u.s is going to be a winner on as far as that goes just because it's hard to immigrate to the U.S. Not as bad a loser, I might think. I mean, we do have sacrifice zones. We've got Cancer Alley. Uh, those are going to grow. <laughs> yeah. And also, I, I got to throw in this little thing that I've, I've heard that uh, you, maybe the breadbasket will just go north. But Yeah, that's true. The soils take decades to become fertile, and, and the soils in Canada are not – if you just start planting on the scale that we planted here, especially if we don't have fertilizers – artificial fertilizer, we're not going to be growing anywhere near what we grow here. And also the sunlight is much lower there. So it's not, it's not just you can just go north. But I don't, I don't necessarily think it would take decades. It might be decades to get it all the way up to the highest. But there's a guy, I think he's a Norwegian, that went to Spain where they've completely depleted. They've turned uh, fertile land into desert over a thousand years or so. And he's brought it back. Because uh, if you if you use science, you can accelerate this process of soil regeneration. And he studied the the biotic content of healthy soils, took that to Spain, and he's regenerated soils much faster than they would naturally. Yeah, someone's doing that in China. I think David Liu is his name. And then actually, I had a, I had on the podcast this guy who's lived among the Kogi, and he did a couple of BBC documentaries. His name his name is Alan Herrera. And the Kogi took some land. So they live in Colombia, up in the mountains. Uh, they've lived there since the conquistadors killed everybody else. And they rewild, or not rewild, but like re um, made fertile again some territory yeah. using techniques. Actually, they're now doing something where they're sending scientists to learn from them rather than scientists to teach them, with the model being they probably know what they're doing more than we do. And the old model being, well, we got to tell these savages what, what's, what's right how things work yeah and if that's true then we're not going to collapse if we can learn from the indigenous peoples how they have uh survived and not degraded their soils then then we have a we have a fighting chance yeah if we don't i mean their territories are decreasing 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 and when human population is a small percentage of the carrying capacity if we double no big deal but if we're over the carrying capacity and we increase a tiny little bit, the amount of wildlife and indigenous people de decreases like it's mm. hanging on by a thread. I do have this image where if we don't wreck all of them, then there might be some uh, culture, say it's the Hadza. So as far as I know, they've been around something like 50,000 years, roughly living how they do, although there's no, we don't really know, but say that's the case. Then at some point, a thousand years from now, they're going to have their stories of the past and they're going to say how these people with re really pale skin and vehicles that were had wheels showed up and for like 200 years, they came in and talked about how they were going to populate the galaxy and take over the universe. And then they disappeared. And there would be songs about us. Yeah. And like we thought we were going to 
we're like, oh, we're going to first Mars or first the moon, then Mars, then the next galaxy or the next uh, solar system. And then, then the whole galaxy. And we're like, it's inevitable that we're going to take over everything. And it could be that we're just this little tiny little blip for a couple centuries yeah. in these other civilizations or cultures that live much longer. So this is stuff for science fiction novelists to work on. <laughs> it could happen. We could end up being nothing more than a song among the indigenous people, mm-hmm. a warning for future generations. But it also could be, you know, that we have a, uh, a high tech future. That's, that's not impossible. Uh, you, you know, I think it's best to have one foot in both camps. So how do we get a high tech future? Oh, I don't know if I'm, <laughs> but we don't lose the one we have. Okay. We have to, you know, keep that technology though. I can tell you, how we would lose it and that would just lose a handle on it get uh so technologically technologically sophisticated that nobody knows how to fix things then we're doomed we have to keep it simple but if we keep it simple even electronics uh average joe can fix a toaster can we make uh computer chips in the in the in the kitchen at that point we'd be able to uh, maintain the technology if we if we had a way of doing something like that so um i can't figure out how to get the power for that <laughs> i guess we'd have if we made solar panels and batteries without drawing down on rare earth metals i so i don't know that's a thing to think of and kind of key is the energy so could we make s- solar panels at home there's a there's something for the the science fiction uh authors to think of. Yeah, I, I don't see any path from where we are now to there. I'm not an engineer. I know one thing that really does solar energy really well is photosynthesis in leaves. I'm a big fan of that. Yeah. So, you know, we don't need solar panels. That's probably not. We get, we get energy from stored energy within trees. Wood fires. It's that. Yeah. That's low tech. We know how to do that. Yeah, I like that. But what about, do we need thinking machines to have a high-tech society, to have a, a thriving society? Do we need computers? Maybe not. Yeah, I read something on the energy use and therefore the pollution of chat GPT, and it's insane. It's really, it's high. Oh, yeah. Yeah, The read about Bitcoin and how much that's polluting too. So we have these useless technologies, even technologies that are worse than useless. They're dangerous, and they're also... Uh, heavy consumers of our energy. So can't say anything good about that. That's uh <laughs> she gets somebody on here to talk about AI more knowledgeable than me. I'm just an AI paranoid. I don't, I think it's a bad idea. I have my prediction is that it seems increasingly that new technologies, what's driving the design and application of technologies is the reward system that leads to addiction. Yeah. And I predict that the, what's going to come out of GP, chat GPT and AI is going to be what addicts people more. And mm-hmm. we're just going to get more and more addicted. And it's going to be a mix of like some, it'll produce some outrage because that's really addictive. It'll produce some, some pornography because that's really addictive. It'll produce some uh, gossip because that's really addictive. And yeah. It's just going to be the same as ever. It's like the same pattern that went from poppy seeds to opium 
to morphine at each stage. We're like, we're taking out the unnecessary stuff. It's going to be more efficient. So there'll be less addiction. And then there's heroin and now fentanyl. And it went from coca leaves to um, chewing coca leaves to, I think there was something before cocaine, then cocaine, then crack. And it's like, crack. Yeah. we just keep, if we just do the market force, if we don't heed the lessons of limits to growth, we just keep, well, it's not just limits to growth, but we just keep addicting ourselves. That's my prediction. Another topic for a, on this one is another topic for a um, science fiction writer would be, can you envision overdosing on artificial intelligence? What would that look like? Since it, you, you draw the parallel with addictive drugs, if AI is a drug and you're not the only one, many are calling uh, are looking at that parallel. You know, can that, let's think about where that's going to lead to. If it does follow that path, we're going to get yeah, overdosed. A lot of the addictions that we get from polluting, depleting activities are slightly different than the addictions with, say, cigarettes. It's like a cigarette where you get the pleasure and someone else gets cancer. So the adverse yeah. effects are with others. I mean, with cigarettes, it does affect other people. There's secondhand smoke. And if, you, um, uh, if your family doesn't like – there's lots of adverse effects that affect others. But with pollution, I get to fly and someone else gets kicked off their land and sent to a refugee camp. So it might be for AI, those that don't participate in AI are selected against. Well, it's also all the pollution and things, the materials necessary to make it happen, people displaced from the land. And yeah. that's, to me, why I try to change my behavior is because I don't want to hurt people. I, I want to reduce the suffering that I cause unnecessarily. Me too. I, I, like, uh, I don't like the dystopian future. I like the utopian yeah. future. And uh, you're working towards that by setting a good example. And I'm working towards it by developing a contraceptive vaccine so that we have uh, easier, so it's easier to have smaller families and, and we can eliminate unwanted pregnancies and, and eliminate the need for abortion and all the political infighting. Actually, since you put it that way, I got to put it a slightly different way that um, contraception doesn't enable you to have smaller families. You can do that without contraception. What contraception gives you is fun, joyful sex. I guess so. That's to me what it does is, is um, it makes sex fun in the moment. Or, I mean, it, it can be lots of things. It can be spiritual. It can be, it can be, but it doesn't have to mean it's an 18-year commitment. Each time you have sex, it doesn't have to mean that you have a smaller family, but I think it makes it that having children is more intentional is that with the, the intention with our technology is that it would be hands off. It would be set it and forget it. And if you have the vaccine, you don't have kids unless you use the reversal agent and then you can have kids. And so then every pregnancy has to be intentional. There's an active measure you have to take to get pregnant. Now, should we get into that now or should we do that? Should we do a second episode? Oh, that would be great. I'm also due to do one of those on, on uh, growth busters. So, <laughs> but so I'll be all practiced. So now, now be that, in other words, yes, I'd be happy to do that. All right. So let's pick up then on, on the vaccine work that you're doing. And since you also mentioned growth busters to comment on some of the things that you, especially the last episode, 
you did on Growthbusters when you talked about people's responses, your your own students' responses to your paper. That yeah. I'll leave it as a teaser for people that they can go to Growth. I'll put a link into that episode in the notes. Okay, so if you if you go to the Growthbuster podcast, you'll hear uh, how I sound shortly after the event, and that's so it'll, it's more fresh in my mind. Uh, now it's kind of you know uh, older and uh, baked in more. So it was a uh, what happened in that that was uh, that I gave a talk about population uh, to graduate students, and I assigned them my paper, Footprints to Singularity. And uh, on that day, uh, the students were kind of addled, mad. And, uh, and so I, I recognized this was not going to be your typical lesson. And I had to sit down and have a therapy session with these 10 graduate students to um, talk about why they're mad. And that was uh, so then what they talked about were issues uh, and I, I don't know why some of these were emotional issues, but one of the issues was it's not about population. It's about distribution. It's about food distribution and feeling, I guess, that that was ignored in the model. Uh, another one was about that this issue is loaded with racism and that this is a global north versus global south tinged issue. There's no race in my model, but nonetheless, that's. These were the reactions I got. And uh, then then the topic is kind of not, I, I can answer, I can take their comments at face value and then I can answer them. I can tell them why uh, food distribution was not modeled, why race, race was not modeled and how it is modeled if you take it as part of a larger aggregate portion of the model. But, what was more interesting to me was the anger that was behind it. It was not this scientific uh, feeling in the room. The scientific conversations are not generally tinged with anger. They are curiousness. They are discovery. So, uh, you know, there's, there's sometimes people disagree on modeling and it gets a little heated, but this was something different. And so this was something that was a, a knee-jerk reaction out of the population issue and the vaccine issue and the contraceptive issue. It sort of just triggered some landmines that seemed to be out there in, in people, not everybody. And when you trigger one of these issues, the emotion then drives the words it drives what you say they now and they started talking and they started lecturing to me and it was no longer a feed it was no longer a back and forth it was no longer a debate it was being lectured at so i listened i tried to um, explain to them that this is not the way science operates and that what you're seeing is and i use science uh what you're doing is coming from a different part of the brain, the part of the brain called the amygdala. It's not coming from the, the cerebral cortex. And please move your conversation back up into the cerebral cortex. Uh, that didn't work. <laughs> when the amygdala is in charge, 
it, it, uh, the last thing it wants to hear is to move the conversation into the cerebral cortex. So that was my experience. It did, um, the therapy session helped to some extent. And by the end of the lecture, we were starting to get to some real questions. But uh, mostly the story is about this issue, pushing buttons. And so when you, most of the time, people simply ignore the issue. It's, it's the elephant in the room. But it, this shows that if you really force people to look at the elephant, they get mad. They don't want to see it. So you, what you've described there is a kind of quick overview of what they'll hear if, when they listen to you talking with Dave on Growth Busters. And since you mentioned it's, it's baked in a bit on your side, you've processed it, some of you reflected. I'm, I'll be curious to hear how that reflection changed. And also I'll point out that at my end, this is, what I, this is why I focus on sustainability leadership and not as opposed to just sustainability so I, I held my tongue when you said I'm leading by example. I'm, I'm not, I don't think leading by example works in this area. What I'm doing solo is living by my values, which gives me credibility and integrity and character, which without, without which I don't think you can lead effectively. But my solo behavior, I have to constantly tell people it's not, playing scales is not, going up on stage and playing at Carnegie Hall. You got to play your scales in order to do that, but no one confuses playing scales on the piano with giving a performance at Carnegie Hall. It's You need to do it. I mean, I'm sure there's kinds of music that don't require playing scales, but you know, for scale-type music, you got to play your scales or else you just don't know what you're talking about. LeBron James practices a lot. I mean, he practices the basics. And if you don't practice the basics, you don't know what you're doing. And... So I, I like that you described it as hitting landmines because I think of it as emotional landmines that I've, like every time I try to do something, I hit another emotional landmine and I have to figure out how to navigate through the minefield because the playing field, uh, sustainability, the issues are science, technology, legislation, things like that. Sustainability, leadership, the issue is culture, beliefs, role models, stories, and what we're we're working on emotions and motivations more than technology and, and laws. Yeah. But without, we need both. If you want to change culture, you got to, you, you need both. Yeah. Leadership and management. But if you, we have lots of people working on one, but n virtually no one working on the other. Yeah. It's been pointed out to me that uh, we know how to fix it. We know how to fix the climate. We probably really know how to fix the population issue. But in order to even start, you have to care. And what we haven't seemed to have managed to do is teach people to care. I don't know how to do that. Oh, I. Oh, we, we'll have to pick up here next time because. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a big topic. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's people not caring. I think people care, but they feel like what they do would be futile. So what's the point? Or they feel like no one around them is doing it. There's lots of different things that. They can care and yet be inhibited from acting despite caring. And, and yeah, I guess uh, I just it needed a different word there, I guess, but they're, they're not acting, whatever that is. Yeah. You can't teach them to take initiative. They might care, but they're not caring enough to do something yet. Or there's lots, uh, there's lots of things there. And that's what, that's my yeah. world. 
<laughs> so let's wrap up here now. Okay. And before we, after we stop recording, but before we hang up, let's schedule the next time. Sure. Um, but was there anything on the demography or, oh yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious if, if Wolfgang Lutz would be interested, would you be interested in being on an episode together? Um, yeah, I, I would love to be on an episode together with Wolfgang Lutz. So, um, and I, I should say uh, to Dr. Lutz that we really agree more than we disagree. It's just that it's, it's my nature as a teacher and a scientist to focus on the places where we disagree because that's where we can learn. So I would be happy to be on and talk about where we agree, talk about where we disagree. And I think maybe we'll get into a discussion about the differences uh, in worldviews that uh, we have in our different, uh, our different fields. Yeah. And that could be a really productive discussion. I've had a few guests that have really strongly disagree with each other, not at the same time. And I don't think that they're talking to each other. And I want to mm. get the discussion happening because I think that there's synthesis to be had. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's a little scary, but I still do want, want to do it. If he's willing. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Okay. Well, uh, unless there's anything else, I, Chris, thank you very much. And thank you very much for having me. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.